Well, let me read again from the, uh, from the passage today. Uh, is Mark chapter 9, verse 30 to 37. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know it, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is to be betrayed into human hands, and they will kill him. And three days after being killed, he will rise again. But they did not understand what he was saying and were afraid to ask him. Then they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you arguing about on the way? But they were silent. For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. He sat down, called the twelve, and said to them, Whoever wants to be first must be last of all and servant of all. Then he took a little child and put it among them, and taking it in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes not me, but the one who sent me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your word is light and life. Shine its light in our hearts, we pray, so that we may live to the glory of Jesus. Amen. Lots of people have been discussing, around the world in fact, in recent days, about goats. Was Michael Phelps the greatest Olympic swimming goat? That is, goat as in greatest of all time. But this week in particular, in the last week, it's been, is Djokovic, Novak Djokovic, the tennis player, is he the goat? Or Roger Federer, or Rafael Nadal, or Rod Laver, for those with longer memories. Muhammad Ali, of course, he was convinced that he was a goat. I am the greatest. And echoing his very words, the former President of the United States, Donald Trump, claimed that, in effect, he was the greatest president of all time. Who is the goat? Jesus had asked his disciples, and we saw this last week's passage, who do you say that I am? And Peter said to him, you are the Messiah. Now, it's not quite saying the same thing to say you are the goat, the greatest of all time, but you are greater than John the Baptist, greater than Elijah, greater than any of the prophets who've come. That's in effect what Peter was saying to Jesus. You you are greater than all of them. So let's call Jesus the goat. But it jarred with Peter when Jesus immediately went on to say that even he, the Messiah, the greatest, would die, be rejected and would suffer. Get behind me, Satan, Jesus said to Peter. We saw that last week in chapter 8 of Mark. But now for the second time, Jesus predicts his death. The beginning of today's passage. He was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is to be betrayed into human hands, and they will kill him. Jesus, with his disciples, is heading south. South from the top of the land from Caesarea Philippi, where Peter made that confession of faith in chapter 8. And now he's re-entered Galilee, we're told. 
passing through. He's not there for public ministry or to stay a long time. He's heading south, south to Jerusalem and south to die. And his focus through this journey is largely on teaching the disciples. Not so much now the big crowds, the public ministry, but more the disciples. As Jesus predicts his death this second time, he emphasizes now being betrayed. That's the new idea that wasn't there in chapter 8. He'll be handed over, uh, This some translations say, betrayed into human hands, out of God's hands into human hands perhaps. Already back in Mark chapter 3, Judas Iscariot is the one who'll betray Jesus. It's not totally a new idea in Mark's gospel. But he will literally be handed over in the arrest by Judas to the Jewish leaders who will hand him over to Pilate, who will hand him over to the soldiers to crucify him. And though it's the second prediction of his death, still the disciples do not understand. They did not understand what he was saying and were afraid to ask him. If you're like me, you're often afraid to ask a question because you feel a bit embarrassed as though you should know the answer and should understand. And maybe that's how they felt. Because they still don't understand why Jesus, the Messiah, the greatest, should die. It doesn't fit their worldview yet. Well, Capernaum is on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee, a tiny village then, an excavated ruin today, right on the edge of the water. And they went, no doubt, to Peter's mother-in-law's house, which had been Jesus' base for his public ministry in Galilee. And we're just told here they came to the house while he was in the house, the house, no doubt Peter's mother-in-law's house that would have been where Jesus with the disciples stayed. Interestingly, the archaeologists are sure that they've found that very house in their excavations, a house that had been a normal house, but then later in the middle of the first century AD became a place of worship of Jesus. So it's in this house that the disciples with Jesus came. They, they uh, don't want other people to know uh, though, of course, word will get out. The, um, Jesus asked them, though, he's known that on this route they've been arguing. And he says to them, what were you arguing with one another about? And they're silent. And they're silent, Mark tells us, because on the way they're arguing about who's the goat, who was the greatest amongst themselves. Well, you might imagine Peter saying, oh, no, I think Djokovic is the goat and John may be arguing for Nadal or something like that. But that's not what they're talking about. They're not arguing about who is somebody out there in sport or the world or politics or something who's the goat. They're rather saying, which of us? And Peter perhaps is saying, well, I'm the greatest because I'm in the inner circle. I'm the leader of you guys. And Jesus entrusts, he talks to me more than any of you. And perhaps Judas is saying, well, I'm the greatest because I'm entrusted with the money. I'm the treasurer of this group. And maybe John says that he's the greatest because Jesus loves me the most. I'm the beloved disciple, perhaps. We don't know exactly what their claims of being the greatest were. But that's the sort of argument they would have been having on the way. And, and they're a bit embarrassed by that, but, but they're not unlike us, are they? We, we are full of pride, often a perverse, inverse pride 
But in, in our conversations with other people, we always want our own stories to be the worst or the best. If, if, if we're talking about difficult life, we want our life to have been the hardest, the toughest. If we've been sick, our sickness is the greatest, the longest, or the worst. Our grandchildren are always the most noteworthy in their classes. Our doctors are always amazed at us. Our holidays are always the best, and our achievements are always unsurpassed. Or we know more famous people than others. That's what our conversations are like. I find it funny that I often meet people who, whose first words were, to me will be say, oh, Bishop, I'm related to, I'm the, the son, the nephew, the daughter, the mother, the sister, whatever it is, of somebody, as though somehow it makes them important. Are they the greatest? Are they the greatest for the parish that I'm visiting at the time? Pride is a besetting sin. We all suffer from it. We want status and we want success. We want to be noticed. We want to be famous. We want to be praised. We want to be remembered. We're offended if we're not thanked at the annual meeting, when the vicar perhaps takes us for granted. And that's, in effect, the same debate, the argument that the disciples are ha having here in a different context. Who's the greatest? Who's the goat? And what we find, and the disciples found, is that Jesus keeps turning all our values on its head. He did it last week. He's a Messiah, but he's, oh, he's going to be killed and suffer and be rejected. How does that fit? No wonder Peter rejected that idea. And so it is here too. Jesus throws our desire for status and success, our desire to be in some small way perhaps the greatest, he throws it all on its head and he says it's not status and it's not success but it's service and lowly service at that. Jesus sat down because this is serious. He's taking time. It's a solemn thing. It's not a passing comment that's coming. And he called the 12. So this is something deliberate and serious. And he said to them, Whoever wants to be first, and that is you disciples on the road, as you've argued with each other, you've each wanted to be the first in some way or other. The best treasurer, the best on the inside, the best in love, whatever it might have been. And we're the same. Whoever wants to be first must be last of all and servant of all. Not that we'll be able to get up and say, I'm the best servant because I've done more dishes than you or I've vacuumed more carpets or I've served more people. That's just the same pride. But rather the servant of all who's unnoticed and is not boasting about it. That's what Jesus is on about here. Service for the sake of others, not service that will radiate the glory of me. You consider the lowliest of all. A child especially in Jesus' society, the lowliest of all comes a kid, not a young goat kid, but a child. And Jesus takes the child, takes it in his arms, a little child presumably, and then he uses it as an enacted parable, a visual sign, if you like. Whoever welcomes one such child as this, in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes, well, not me, but the one who sent me, that is, 
God the Father. Why is humble service the key? Because it directs attention to Jesus. Whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes Jesus. That is, the attention is taken away from the child to Jesus. And so our service is not a service that will radiate glory back onto me because I've done more service than you, I've served for more years than you, or done harder service than somebody else. That's not the competition of greatness now. But rather it's the lowly service, the servant of all, who draws attention not to self, but to Jesus. That's where true greatness is found. Not in our success and not in our status, but in our service that brings glory and honor and fame to Jesus Christ. A service not of being noticed, but rather highlighting Jesus. It's a challenge to us, isn't it? Our world is not like this. Our world, and and we are part of it, and we fall into the same besetting sin of pride, is wanting to be noticed, wanting to be famous, wanting to be remembered, wanting people to know who we are, to think that there's something remarkable about us. Our world says it's all about me. But in fact, Jesus says it's all about the glory of God. And that's why this little child is the visual parable, if you like, for this lesson of inverted values. Not status, children had little. Not success, children had little. But service that draws our attention to Jesus Christ. That's where true greatness is found. It's true humility, not pride. It's not an inverted pride, but it's the absence of pride. Humble service that does not draw attention to oneself. About two or three weeks ago, my friend Judson died of COVID. Judson was the archdeacon of Yangon, the biggest city in Myanmar. And he died catching COVID because he was helping people who had no other help in COVID. The health system has collapsed in Myanmar because of the military coup in February. And so the church is trying to scrounge, if you like, oxygen cylinders and people are taking them to people who are getting sick and helping them at home with food or supplies or oxygen. There's no, not enough PPE materials, all that sort of stuff. And Judson, the Archdeacon of Yangon, caught COVID age 52 and died. I've known him for 15 years, a faithful follower of Jesus Christ. I guess that's one example of somebody who considered service of others, not for their own glory, but at their own risk, but for the sake and for the glory of Jesus. Judson showed the love of Christ, even at the cost of his own life. And that's what Jesus is saying to his disciples back in chapter 8 and today, and we'll see it in the chapters that unfold. If you want to be great, follow Jesus. Deny yourself Take up your cross was the language of chapter 8 and be true servant of all. You see, in the end, it's not about us. It's not about me. It's not about our length of service. It's not about our ancestry of service. 
It's not about being the gatekeeper or the controller of our church. I've met people who said to me, my family has looked after this church or given for this church for 100, for 120 years. Not St. Andrew's Brighton, sorry, just a church, just a generic example. We Anglicans may like the back row, but we perversely do not like to be unnoticed. And we're similar to our world and Jesus' world, of course. Our world longs for the glory, as Djokovic no doubt did last weekend. But glory, Jesus is telling us, comes through the cross, through self-denial, through true service and servanthood of all for Jesus' sake. Not status, not success, but humble service. Like Jesus, the goat, the greatest of all time whose greatness is found in his service even to death on a cross for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this challenge of Jesus to be like him, to take up our cross even to death, to deny ourselves, to be the true servant of all, rather than boastful, proud, and arrogant. Help us, Lord God, to be more like him as we follow him. Amen.